Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 14 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Today's discussion focuses on all sorts of movement geeky insights about the nervous system, and we also take a special look at something called polyvagal theory. Polyvagal theory is a very trendy topic in the yoga and movement worlds right now, so you may have heard of it before, but its popularity far transcends just the yoga sphere. It's a technique used in many mental health therapy settings, as well as somatics-based practices, such as somatic experiencing, and much more. If you're familiar with polyvagal theory, you'll certainly find this episode of our podcast to be interesting. And if you haven't heard of polyvagal theory before, you'll still find this episode super interesting because examining the ideas of this theory through a scientific lens makes for an inherently fascinating and also totally educational conversation. Also, even if you think you haven't heard of polyvagal theory before, there's a good chance you've actually heard ideas and concepts that are rooted in this theory and you just might not have realized it. Here's a very quick lowdown on polyvagal theory just to give you either a primer or a refresher. Polyvagal theory revolves around the role of the vagus nerve in emotion regulation, social connection, and trauma. It proposes an alternate model of autonomic nervous system function to the traditional established model. We've probably all learned that we have two main nervous system responses, fight or flight, and rest and digest. And we've even talked about these two responses here on the podcast before. So polyvagal theory actually proposes a third type of nervous system response that it calls immobilization or shutdown, and it links this to traumatic experiences. Polyvagal theory reframes the function of the vagus nerve to play a role in both this third type of immobilization response, as well as the more familiar rest and digest response. Now, when it comes to measuring a person's stress levels, polyvagal theory claims that the best way to do that is through measuring vagal tone or the activation of the vagus nerve. And I don't know about you, but I've personally heard the term vagal tone a lot in the yoga and movement worlds these days. And then other terms you might have heard that also stem from polyvagal theory are neuroception and co-regulation. Anyway, that's just the briefest of intros, and we talk more about the theory and its concepts in our conversation today. Polyvagal theory is something that Travis and I have wanted to examine on the podcast for a while now, but we wanted to do so with the help of someone who has more expertise in the nervous system than we do. So we invited the amazing and knowledgeable Dr. Laura Baer on the podcast to discuss this topic with us. We'll introduce you to Laura in just a moment, and I have a feeling you'll love learning from her as much as we do. 
And now without further ado, here's our episode. Today, we are really excited to welcome Dr. Lara Baer to the podcast. She is a very special guest. She is a yoga teacher, Pilates teacher, physical therapist, and PhD candidate in health and rehabilitation sciences. Her research centers on the biopsychosocial impact of physical activity following spinal cord injury. Lara also has a long history as a dance artist. Her teaching is inclusive interdisciplinary movement for all. And dating back to her undergraduate degree in dance and neuroscience, she has a special interest in the nervous system, which is what made her the perfect guest for this episode. Also, fun fact, Lara and I have known each other since we were eight years old. So Lara, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you told everyone that. It is really true. We've known each other our whole lives. Yeah. And it just was happenstance that, so, well, I guess I didn't mention that we, you're doing your PhD where I did my PhD at Drexel University. So not that we ever lost touch per se, but we reconnected in the last few years um, just by happenstance. Yeah. And I guess also living in the same city, but. Yes. There were lots of opportunities to run into each other, but I'm glad we did. I'm glad we reconnected. Me too. I love um, that tidbit. And thank you for saying that, Travis. And I just feel so lucky that I got to meet Laura through you and that you went out of your way to introduce me to her and connect connect me to Laura. I will take um, credit for <laughs> that matchmaking. Yeah. Because Laura has been a guest in your teacher, uh, in your class, a guest teacher in your online class library. Exactly. She's record. Yeah. Great um, yoga and movement classes in the library and also kind of evolved into little mini workshops and yoga teacher training, like like 20 minute little minis for um, for my geeky audience on my website who really loves learning from you, Laura. And so people have been really excited to have you on the website, but now they'll be so excited to hear from you in a longer form um, on this podcast episode today. So thank you so much for saying yes to joining us. And um, our main focus today is the nervous system. And like Travis mentioned, we know that's something that, you, uh, that you've specialized in in your research. You have a, a special interest in it. And so we knew that you'd be the perfect person to invite on. But we were just in general, we know the nervous system is a huge topic. And of course, we can't thoroughly cover it in the course of a single podcast episode. But there are some just just some good foundational and relevant information for yoga movement and fitness teachers and practitioners to like kind of get a get a handle on and understand. So we were hoping you could share some of that information today. And then we also wanted to take a dive into kind of what seems like a hot topic to us. Uh, in the yoga movement and also the therapeutic worlds, which is something called polyvagal theory, which if our listeners are not familiar with that, we'll introduce that to you thoroughly in a moment after we've set out some foundations of the nervous system first. But we want to take a nice scientific look at polyvagal theory. Um, so that's kind of the, the aim of our focus today. Uh, Laura, could you start us off by maybe just laying out just some foundations about maybe the nervous system structure and function so that our listeners have kind of like a, a foundation to work with as we move forward in this chat? Yeah, absolutely. I love the way you framed that too, because one of my favorite things in the entire world is to take something that seems really scary to understand, like the nervous system, and make yeah. it really simple. Just explain it like I'm five. 
you know, but you know what? I will, I will give you more than that, honestly, Travis, because I think people actually can understand this information way more than they think they can, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have it in us literally, like this is part of how we are as people. And so that knowledge and that confidence you can build through the information is just amazing, especially in, in movement spaces. All that being said, I absolutely can take you through some basics. So I think what I like to do most of the time is just start by explaining that we have a central nervous system and a peripheral nervous system, which I think a lot of folks don't necessarily know about that. So the central nervous system is literally your brain and your spinal cord. And your spinal cord runs from your brain down basically in the middle of your body through the center of your vertebrae. And then the peripheral nervous system is all of the nerves that are offshoots of the brain and the spinal cord. And um, the way I, the way I think about it in terms of like an analogy would be an orchestra. And you'll probably hear me talk about this a few different times where the brain is almost like a conductor. And so when the conductor is not there, they're not leading the orchestra. Right. Uh, And then the spinal cord is almost like the lead player of every section. So the lead player is responsible for conducting information right from the conductor to the rest of their section, maybe when the tempo changes or what have you. And then the peripheral nervous system is like everybody else in the orchestra. So they're just as important, but they're not necessarily the leaders. They're taking cues from that that main member of the section. And then, of course, everyone's taking cues from the conductor. So. If one of the people in the orchestra that is part of the periphery ends up being sick or drops out for some reason, they're missed, right? But the orchestra still plays on. Um, if some, if one of the main members of one of the sections is gone, well, there's a lot of information that's going to be missing, right? Because they're that information highway, if you will. And that's the way a lot of people think of the spinal cord. And then, of course, if the conductor is gone, <laughs> the orchestra doesn't cry. So that's kind of the easiest way that I like to explain the difference between the central and the peripheral nervous system. That is such a useful and helpful analogy. Oh, Thank good. you so much for yeah outlining that distinction. Um, so that's really helpful to think of kind of these two major divisions, the central and the peripheral. So within the central nervous system, uh, are there further distinctions and divisions there? Oh, yes. Um, and <laughs> you, you feel free to let me know how much of a deep dive you want me to take. <clears throat> but I think what I'll say generally is the function of the central nervous system is to take in all of the information the body is giving us, whether it be internal information or environmental information, and processing it and analyzing it and doing something about it, right? It's what, what makes us alive. Um, it's, it's very much in terms, it's when I think of the conductor, the reason why I say that is because it's making the decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, and if a part of the central nervous system gets knocked out, whether that be from an injury or, um, a disease or something like that, regeneration can happen certainly, but, um, it's a lot harder to do. Whereas like with the peripheral nervous system, regeneration can actually be a little bit more possible. Um, so There's a trade-off there because the peripheral nerves are telling your central nervous system a lot of information, but they're kind of messengers, right? Like they're not the lead player. They're not making big decisions. But then the flip side is if something happens somewhere in your peripheral nervous system, there is a higher chance that you could recover from that. That makes a lot of sense. 
So it sounds like through this orchestra of the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, it sounds like information is both being, uh, both traveling in to be processed and then commands and regulatory behaviors being sent out to the peripheries. It's kind of like like a two-way street. Mm -hmm. And you may have heard or read things like afferent, which is coming Mm -hmm. in versus Mm -hmm. efferent or efferent, which is going out. Um, So you're absolutely right. It really is truly that simple. We have information that comes in from our body to our brain, and we have information from our brain that goes out to our body. And it's not always linear, right? And I'm sure we're going to start to talk more about that as the conversation flows, but there's a lot of dynamic processes that come with that. But understanding that really information goes one of two ways is um, helpful. Yeah, in and out. That makes a lot of sense. So to kind of further break it down a little bit more, we we have part of the nervous system that is voluntary, like under voluntary control, and then another part of the nervous system that's involuntary. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yes. Perfect segue. So <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna transition to only or mainly think about um the peripheral nervous system. So there's like the somatic part which is the voluntary, right? We think of skeletal muscles moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's autonomic or auto, right? That's how I re- remember it. A lot of that is unconscious, involuntary. Uh, and so those are some of the divisions that we can start to talk about for sure. Because within, I think where, where maybe the listeners are interested, within the autonomic nervous system is that division of parasympathetic and sympathetic. Exactly. Yeah, that's that is definitely a part of the nervous system that I think our conversation will be taking a deeper dive into. So, uh, but I guess before we go there, you could just, um, yeah, just elaborate a little bit about the that distinction. So, like the voluntary side or the somatic side of the nervous system would be. Would you say skeletal muscles? Just in case our listeners don't don't know, those would be the uh, muscles that attach to our bones and move our skeleton around. You got it. Yep. <laughs> and yeah. so those are under voluntary control. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and we certainly, you're going to hear me kind of go back and forth because I'm trying to, to break it down, but there's also complexities to it. So as much as we do have voluntary control of our muscles, we also do have things like reflexes. Um, you know, so if if you've ever been to the doctor and they, you know, hit a mallet on your knee, um, and your knee kicks out, you know, that that's considered involuntary. Um, so the, so there are those basic reflexes in our bodies as well. But when I think of the somatic nervous system, I'm thinking about the brain telling that peripheral nervous system, I want you to lift your arm. I want you mm-hmm. to hit warrior two, you know, um, and, and <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the way I think about voluntary peace. Yeah. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Um, so it kind of occurs to me, you were mentioning, uh, thinking about the voluntary nervous system and the control of skeletal muscles and, and like hitting warrior two, as you mentioned, like in a yoga context, yeah. which made me think that in a yoga movement fitness context, I think if we think about like the nervous system's um, effect on the body, we tend to be a little more 
um, biased or rooted in like a musculoskeletal perspective. Uh, and we kind of think about the nervous system and how it moves us around because movement is this like gross level. That's what we see with our eyes. In many ways, that's what we're teaching is what we're having people do. But there's this whole other side to how the body works and even moves if we think about just all the processes inside, like our visceral organs and so much happening, hormones being released, the breath moving in and out, all of that is also movement. It's just not like at this gross level that we see from the outside. Yeah. So um, you've delineated in one of your workshops on my website that uh, how easy it is to kind of um, go, like have this musculoskeletal approach, which is still, which is really helpful and important that we all know, but it's easy to maybe overlook the importance of, of more, a more nervous system based approach or, or what, um, what other roles the nervous system has besides just like moving our bones around. Yeah. Um, and like, if the skeletal muscles are the muscles that are more, more under voluntary control, aside from those autonomic, uh, autonomic reflexes, we talked about, there are other types of muscles in the body that are actually under involuntary control, right? Um, what muscles are those? And what part of the nervous system controls those? Yeah, great question. So I just want to say too, I love the way you describe the fact that movement is not just what we can see, like movement is happening at a cellular level all the way up through what you do see on the outside of a human. Um, and that's one of my favorite ways to think about it. And I also would just share that for the teachers listening, you know, you're probably using elements of the nervous system that you're maybe don't even realize you're already using. But I think that's the fun part about when you realize that you're actually able to manipulate the nervous system a little bit, you can start to, to intentionally build those things into your class plans or your private sessions or what have you. Anyway, so to get to the second part of your question, absolutely, that parasympathetic division within the automatic or autonomic nervous system is responsible for some of the movement or involuntary movement of things going on inside the body. Um, so there are nerves that are responsible for actually sensing and moving like the throat, the lungs, all of the intestines, um, the liver, the kidneys, uh, you know, your stomach. And so, like, for example, I think one of the best things we can talk about as an example is like your intestines actually move on their own. It's something called peristalsis. And it's like a rhythmic contraction of your intestines that usually is happening when you're digesting. Um, and everyone has like a different level of it. And depending on if you have some stuff going on with your digestion, it might change. Uh, but that's a really good example of like, you know, we don't think about peristalsis, right? But our, but our, <laughs> our belly is doing it and our intestines are doing it in order for us to continue to function. That's and those muscles that are performing peristalsis uh, in the small intestine, those are not skeletal muscles, right? What exactly. Muscle, what kind of muscles smooth. are those? Smooth yeah, muscles. Smooth. Um, and I, I would have to go back and spend a little more time thinking about or remembering exactly how they move, but all yeah. of it really has to do with the anatomy. So like a skeletal muscle, for example, like it has insertions and attachments or origins and insertions, like part of your bicep is up here or up at the top of your shoulder and then down in your elbow, right? And so when it contracts, it brings your elbow and your wrist closer to your upper arm. But with smooth muscle, it doesn't have the same striations or the same um, right. uh, direction of the fibers. And so because of that, it's just going to do different movements. But I'm not a great expert in exactly the anatomy of the smooth muscle, but mm -hmm. it is definitely different than skeletal muscle. That's all. Yeah. And I think for our purposes, just kind of being aware that it's like a 
that the smooth muscle lines like our internal organs and is under that autonomic control. So it's more, um, the nervous system is controlling it and, and running that whole process, but we're not even really, we don't, we're not consciously aware of it. We don't have to think about it. Like you said. And the just, heart does, mm -hmm. is another example of that. The heart is, uh, doesn't that make up our third type of muscle? If we're just, if we're getting muscle geeky a little bit here, we've got skeletal mm -hmm. muscle, smooth muscle, and then cardiac muscle. Am cardiac. I right? Uh -huh. Is yeah. in the heart. Yeah, your heart is a muscle. I mean, there's so there's so much involved um, in in those tissue that you know, even though they're they're different and they have different purposes, they are all muscle, um, which is really cool. So, so yes, you're you do have cardiac muscle, and um, I'm and maybe I don't know if we're going to talk about this later or not, but I'll bring it up right now that you know your heart beats on its own, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so we don't necessarily think about our heart beating. But the other piece is that to a certain extent, we don't have conscious control over the variation in our heartbeat. A little bit of that is actually part of that parasympathetic nervous system where there's there's something called the um, sinoatrial node, which basically hangs out at the top of your heart. And it's a lot of people think of it as your pacemaker, like your, your, your natural pacemaker of the heart. So it helps to slow the heart rate down and keep it at that, what people consider to be average of like 60 to 80 beats per minute. And some, some research has shown that if you take the SA node away, your heart rate in humans, but also in other mammals and um, invertebrates like shoots up, right? So there's that piece, but heart rate is actually a little bit complicated too, because we can to a certain extent control the heart rate a little bit from the outside. Um, for, through things like mm. breathing, mm -hmm. but yes, absolutely. That is part of the involuntary system to a certain extent. That totally makes sense. And I'm glad you're going a little deeper into the heart because yeah, I'm, I have a feeling it's going to come up a little bit more in our conversation, but since you brought up that the parasympathetic, ner parasympathetic nervous system can have an influence on heart rate, could you maybe elaborate for us a little bit now on the, that distinction between sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, those those two divisions within that autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So remember when you're thinking in that umbrella of autonomic, the idea is that it is unconscious, right? Involuntary. Mm -hmm. So parasympathetic versus sympathetic are basically on either side of the room in terms of what they do to different physiological processes in our body. The best way that I describe this, which maybe you've heard before is what happens when you're running from a monster. Okay, so just imagine that there's a bear, a monster or whatever. What does your body do? Your body wants to get away from that threat, that danger as quickly as possible. That is your sympathetic nervous system. Some people will call it fight or flight. So let's mm -hmm. just say that we're flying <laughs> because we, we <laughs> want to be with the monster, right? <clears throat> your heart rate is going to increase because your body needs more blood in order to run, <laughs> get away. Um, mm -hmm. Your pupils are going to dilate. They're going to get real big so that you can see everything around you. You're not necessarily going to be digesting your food because like that's not top priority, right? Because you're not going to be able to eat food if you get eaten. <laughs> so your body's <laughs> not going to be digesting uh -huh, all those things. Um, your breath rate comes up, right? Because you're <laughs> trying to make sure that you're running away, have enough oxygen to get through your lungs, but also the oxygen and the blood are paired so that you need more oxygen to fuel your blood, etc. So that's fight or flight. Maybe you can hear my voice. Like it makes me feel like that. Like yeah, really nervous. Okay. And then parasympathetic, some people will say rest and digest. Mm -hmm. And so what happens then you found a cave, you ran away from the monster. The monster is no longer a threat and you can finally relax. 
So your pupils start to shrink back up because you don't need to see everything so clearly. Your body starts to allow itself to digest its food because you're not under any persistent or acute threat in that moment. Your heart rate slows, your breath rate slows, and it's kind of that feeling of like you're on your way to sleep town. So those are the very black and white explanations mm-hmm. of sympathetic the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. Um, but I but I will say that I don't think it's that easy to say that it's one versus the other. And that's all I'll say in this moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to hear those two talked about as though they're like completely binary or in an on off relationship, like you're either in fight or flight or you're in rest or digest. But and I think you talked about this in your workshop on on my website, Laura, but just that it's like it's not so much like a light switch that's either on or off. But they're a little more, is it correct to say that these two sides of the autonomic nervous system are both active and in this kind of uh, dynamic relationship uh, to one another? I completely agree with that. I think that's the best way you can say it. So instead of that light switch, it's like a dimmer, you know, just mm-hmm. constantly on a spectrum. And sometimes one is working a little more than the other, but they're always working. They're communicating. They're not foes. They're friends. It reminds me of the energy systems from a physiological standpoint of the, so there are three energy systems. You could simplify it maybe to aerobic and anaerobic, but people think like, oh, it's either this or that and one's on and one's off. And it's like, no, they're actually, yeah, one's dominating in a, a shorter event or a longer event, a higher or a lower intensity, but they're feeding off of each other. It's not just like you said, it's not one's on and off. It's like the the ones maybe working in the background while the other ones being most utilized. Yeah. And so the, and then they kind of swap. And you know what? I will say too, just while we're having this conversation, because I absolutely agree with you, people love to categorize and bucket information just it like helps. Aerobic, because we're human, because the world is right. tough and we're trying to learn things. I think people like genuinely have good intentions when they try to categorize information. And sometimes mm-hmm. information does need to be categorized, right? Like, you know, I am looking at a keyboard or like I am looking at a screen, like objective information. Okay. But when you're talking about these complex physiological systems, I actually just feel like it really does us a disservice as humans to try to reduce all of these mm-hmm. amazing dynamic processes down to just these black and white understanding. Um, and, and, you know, when you're a practitioner or um, a teacher and you're not, you don't necessarily have a science background, I don't think anyone would have the expectation that you have to understand all of the complex physiology. But I think the breakdown there is if you're not sure of exactly what the info is, then why are we perpetuating these stories about the black and white? If, you know, like you don't need to know the complex interaction, but then you also don't need to be carrying around this story about the black and white, because you're just taking that information to other people who are then believing you. And then the cycle continues, right? So just making more space for the gray area in terms of these conversations is just helpful, I think. Absolutely. I think that's such a huge point to emphasize. Um, Always appreciating that nuance and gray area. And I also love how you do point out that there can be value in simplifying or, or categorize. Like, I mean, sometimes it's a helpful tool for learning. Things can just be just too tough to grasp otherwise, but maybe as long as we always keep that container, uh, um, keeping that within the container of understanding, there's like a much bigger picture and we're just, 
we're just using these tools to help us uh, conceptualize and understand better, but it's not the full story. Absolutely. Which that kind of um, that kind of prompts me to want to shift our conversation into um, maybe taking a look at polyvagal theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just a quick question before we go there. Um, I was wondering, because I think this is relevant for talking about polyvagal theory, there's a term I tend to hear used a lot um, in relation to the nervous system, which is regulation. Oh. nervous system regulation or up regulation down regulation like this this word and i'm wondering if you could just maybe define it elaborate because i think it'll also we'll also be talking about regulation when we talk about pvt or polyvagal theory you got it yeah ooh that's a great question there's a lot of different directions we could go but i think what i'll start by saying is regulation when you just take it as a word means like coming back to some level of balance. So in a, from a scientific space, you might think of the word homeostasis. Uh, and I think all of us at some point in our science careers, even if it ended at like fourth grade beakers, probably heard about like homeostasis, right? Um, and so that balance of complex physiological systems. When it comes to nervous system regulation, I think it's just that. It's being able to internalize information from the body and the environment no matter what it is, and eventually being able to get back to a place of balance. So, and that's really hard. It's tricky to define what balance is because down to the, the most, the most um, tiny, tiny level, we have like sodium and potassium <laughs> molecules mm-hmm. that are governing our neurons. So homeostasis right. sometimes can literally be about like ions and, and, and <laughs> you know, um, and, and some wow. people, some people, depending on what they have physiologically going on with them, that could literally be some of the root of what is happening. Um, you know, I, I think, again, I don't, I don't want to go too much into a deep dive on this, but going back to the heart, when people have congestive heart failure, for example, um, it's usually an imbalance of sodium and potassium and the the chemical firing in that action potential that relates to the heart is just not in balance. And so you're not getting that regular rhythm, you're not getting that output. And that's when the heart starts to fail, which is why then sometimes you see people get things like pacemakers. So it's taking an electrical, electrical signal from an external source and placing it into the body to support, right? So even though it seems like, oh, it's the heart, it's, it's the, you know, it's the cardiovascular system. Yeah, well, that's also your nervous system. So that's part of regulation. Um, mm-hmm. Regulation can also be, I think, you know, in the context of what a lot of people think about of that balance of fight or flight versus rest and digest, which again, I think we're kind of debunking here, like, that regulation is dynamic. It's not, uh, it's not stasis. No one, nothing is ever just going to stay the same all the time, right? The only constant is change. Literally, that's probably the best way to think about regulation. Um, you want, you want change. You want your body to adapt to change. And that's kind of how you're constantly able to, to manage all the complexities of what's going on with your body. And so I guess the follow up to that is, does the body do a good job with that? And, or does the body sometimes need help with that? from the standpoint of, oh, uh, these movement practices that are either calming or up, upregulating or downregulating, right? Like we do those to assist with the body's natural responses from a homeostasis standpoint. Yeah, it's a really great point that you bring up. So I'm gonna answer it in two parts. The first is, 
I think there's a lot of misinformation out there that somehow our bodies are not as intelligent or complex or capable to regulate as they truly are. Like think Mm -hmm. about just all these conversations we are having, having right now today, you know, maybe some folks who are listening have never thought about the role of ions in their body. Well, your body's been doing that for X number of years that you've been alive (laughs) on this earth. So congratulations, your body is resilient and strong as heck, you know? Um, So there's that piece. And the second piece is, I think one of the reasons why I'm such a movement nerd, I think maybe we're all movement nerds, is because we do know that there's this amazing value that we have control over to support our health and to support that regulation through movement. So absolutely. I think it's, it's, again, there's that gray area, right? We are strong, we are resilient, but we also can support ourselves through movement. That's such a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of finding that balance between, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to pathologize people or, or make it seem like we need certain practices or this is the one practice that we need to, to get us back into balance or something. So we want to acknowledge that our body has this innate, um, innate processes that do that really beautifully for us, but it's not like our movement practices, uh, or, or, um, yoga, fitness, whatever. It's not like that can't enhance our health and well-being as well, or be one tool among many tools that can maybe help that process along. Um, oh, just really, this is just a quick, uh, clarification question that it might just be me that has this question, but I, I, um, I hear the terms upregulation and downregulation. Mm-hmm. Okay. May, maybe as I'm asking it, it's starting to make sense to me, but upregulation generally is 10, um, tends to be used when we're talking about moving more into fight or flight. And down regulation is moving more into rest and digest. So is it, is that, is that right? Like upregulate is sympathetic activation and down regulate is parasympathetic activation. So I definitely think that is the correct way to think about it. I don't necessarily know if that is always the only thing that could be upregulated or downregulated. Right. Um, so, and again, this is like maybe beyond sort of, just to start conversation yeah. today, but there there are certain systems within our body that can override or upregulate themselves, um, you know, mm-hmm. and be, because that actually is really protective. So it's not. <laughs> this is maybe a spoiler alert for later, but like upregulation <laughs> of your sympathetic nervous system isn't always a bad thing. Isn't always a bad thing. That's what you said, right? No, exactly. It's not always a bad thing. Remember, the only constant is change. So if you're hanging out in one space forever and always, amen, and that's the only way your body likes to handle things, well, then that's a bit of a problem. But allowing yourself to, you know, (laughs) feel nervous, get sweaty, all of the things that come with that sympathetic or upregulation that we think about um, can actually be really supportive. And I think maybe we've had this conversation offline before, but like one of the reasons why I think a lot of people do high intensity training or maybe endurance level training is because it actually in a positive way activates the sympathetic nervous system so that on the back Mm -hmm. end, the body has gotten really good, difficult external feedback from like a natural space or a non-anxiety producing space. And then your body is actually able to kind of rest more easily some again, this is reducing it. So please don't take this as just like base fact, but like there is an understanding that people who have really great endurance tend to have a lower resting heart rate. Having a lower mm-hmm. resting heart rate has a lot of great physiological implications. Um, that's not just heart, right? It's also nervous system. And so that's just one example of how like when you when you 
actively put yourself in difficult situations and from a movement space that could be really taxing your body for an extended period of time or coming on and off of that taxing, that can actually really support that homeostasis or that regulation that you were asking me about. That's fantastic that you're emphasizing that because I do think uh, that there is a tendency, especially maybe within the yoga world, in which there's a stereotype that that yoga tends to all and this isn't even a correct stereotype, but a lot of people think of yoga as just being always relaxing, always passive, always gentle. And we all know that yoga is more complex than that. But I do think a lot of people have these ideas that that may, that every that everybody is super upregulated in our society and that we all need down regulating practices like the way that we all heal our bodies or regulate better is that we should all um, do down regulating practices like restorative yoga or yin yoga or things like that. But it sounds to me like you're suggesting maybe there's a bigger picture. So something we talk about a lot in my research um, is this concept of resilience. And when I think of resilience, yeah. it's like, how many times can you get back up after being knocked down, right? Someone with high resilience can get knocked clobbered over and over and over again, and they get back up. It's that person in your life that no matter how many trials they've gone through, they have a positive attitude, they feel confident that they can do the things that they need to do, etc. right? And then lower resilience is like, and I don't mean this as, an, as a negative thing whatsoever, um, but lower resilience can be like maybe a couple of things have, that have happened in your life is just too, too much for you. And then it makes it really difficult to cope. And that's more of a, on a psychological side. Um, but there's also physical resilience too, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, we can go down that road as much as you'd like, but <laughs> ultimately I think that movement practice, including yoga, should build our resilience physically and mentally, right? And so part of building resilience is again, putting yourself in difficult situations. So yes, maybe your yoga practice is slow or slower than if you're doing box jumps, for example, but the position that you're in and all the things you're thinking about and the breathing and connecting the breathing to your body, like those are really challenging things. And, you know, of course we all know, like changing the speed, changing the flow, how many times you repeat something, all of that can make the practice really challenging. And, and any time that you build in that challenge, I think you're ultimately building up that resilience to take with you off the mat. That's awesome. Thank nailed you it. so much for, yeah, nailed it. Exactly. <laughs> and I, um, I think we'll leave when, when we end this conversation, I think we'll leave our listeners with a few more like kind of like super relevant and applicable, um, notions like that, that they can then think about within their own yoga movement practice. So they have to listen to the end. Yeah, you have to, <laughs> but to get to the end, you have to listen to the next part of our conversation in which we're going to take a shift that's still very relevant and builds on everything we've already talked about. But, um, let's take a look at this, this, um, I would suggest kind of a buzz term that we tend to hear. I've noticed it a bunch in the yoga world, but I realize it's a little, it's wider than that. It's also, um, mental health fields and, um, somatic practices is just my, um, my observation that this is brought into a lot of somatic space practices within the yoga world itself, especially yoga therapy circles I've noticed. But I also think it's it's um, in general in the yoga world, but specifically yoga therapy. Anyway, I think it's just this really widespread uh, topic and belief in something called polyvagal theory. And Travis and I have been wanting to address this on the podcast for a while now. So we're really excited to have you here to talk about it. For our listeners who may not be familiar with polyvagal theory, they may not have even heard about it before. Would you be able to just kind of give a brief five-year-old understanding of... Um, what it is. 
Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. We hope you've been finding this conversation to be of value. And if you appreciate hearing Dr. Laura Bear teach and share about the body, movement, and the nervous system, just know that you can actually also learn from Laura in several quick, digestible 20-minute classes and workshops designed specifically for yogis in my online yoga class library. I'm really honored to have Laura as a regular special guest teacher for my website community. Also on my website, you can find Strength for Yoga, which is a monthly program that Travis and I created to make strength training accessible and relevant for yogis. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in any of the memberships on my website, including my online class library or our Strength for Yoga offering. You can learn more and sign up on my website, jennyrawlings.com, and the link to that is in the show notes. And now back to our episode. For our listeners who may not be familiar with polyvagal theory, they may not have even heard about it before, would you be able to just kind of give a brief five-year-old understanding of um, what it is? Yeah. So, and uh, this understanding or this description I'm about to give truly, I think I'm in the same space as, as you guys and also perhaps many of the listeners where I am by no means an expert in polyvagal theory. So based on my research and some of the things I have read, I can share what I understand. Mm-hmm. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, based on what you you guys have looked at, is that the idea of polyvagal theory came about in like the mid 90s. Um, mm-hmm. And it was from uh, a gentleman who was involved in medicine and also also research and understanding the nervous system. And there's this idea that people who have high <laughs> people who have high vagal tone, which we can talk more about this, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, relating to the vagus nerve, okay, nervous system, high vagal tone are more resilient or um, have a, a better emotional balance. And then people who have lower vagal tone are less resilient and have less emotional balance. So there's a lot of conversations about people who've gone through trauma, potentially having lower vagal tone. And so somehow what polyvagal theory suggests is that you can actually upregulate or or increase the strength of your vagal tone, which by virtue of doing that will somehow support your emotional stability and resilience. Um, that's one part of it. I think another interesting part that I found in my reading is that the, the gentleman who suggested polyvagal theory said that, um, the, the rest and digest component of our, of our body and of our physiology is like more evolved than the fight or flight. And so the idea is that people who can't, can't activate or can't, um, get at that parasympathetic side or that rest and digest side of their body are stuck somehow in this like sympathetic fight or flight land. And ultimately in order for us to restore that balance, you have to be able to strengthen the vagus nerve. That's my understanding. I would love to know if there, if I misunderstood that or um, if there's extra info I didn't include. To me, I think based on my, because I've done reading and research on this in preparation for this episode as well, I think you summarized that really well. Um, at one point I had read about that, I don't know if you had come across Laura, but that, um, so the the man who proposed polyvagal theory, Stephen, po- I, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, P-O-R-G-E-S, Porges, or 
Mm-hmm. Poor has. Uh, anyway, he proposed back in 1994 that um, so the vagus nerve, as you mentioned, is uh, maybe we should I mean, maybe we should quickly define the vagus nerve and its role in the parasympathetic nervous system. Yeah, or it's, yeah. its function. Sorry. And then I'll say what I was going to say. No, I actually was trying to decide when I was first answering you if I should have started there because. Yeah, maybe you know, I should have asked that first. No, it's, t- it's totally fine. I think. It's never too late. <laughs> yeah, never too late. The only constant is change. <laughs> um, so the vagus nerve is, I hope this is not too confusing, but please, please feel free to clarify with me if it is. The vagus nerve is part of the peripheral nervous system, right? So it's not part of the central nervous system, that brain and spinal cord I was describing to you before. It's actually what's considered a cranial nerve, meaning it comes off of the head in some place. The vagus nerve is really cool. It's the longest cranial nerve. And actually, I think it translates in Latin literally to like wandering because it is the longest one. And it travels from the back of the head down through the throat, down past the lungs, through the diaphragm, super cool, into the intestines. It has... It's a mixed nerve, meaning it has both sensory and motor pieces. So it's partially responsible for some of the muscular movement of speaking and swallowing and making noise. Mm -hmm. But mostly what it's known for is that parasympathetic regulation of a lot of the internal organs. So based on what we were talking about earlier, the vagus nerve is what controls that SA node I was talking about in the heart. Um, So it controls Mm -hmm. heart rate, Mm -hmm. it controls breath rate. Um, it controls digestion, and that kind of makes sense because it travels through all of those areas. And the the where it kind of goes through or around the diaphragm through or around kind whichever. of like it kind of tunnels through, and it, it has a little nerve buddy at the diaphragm called the phrenic nerve. And the phrenic nerve is actually nerve what's buddy. responsible for moving. <laughs> it's responsible for moving the diaphragm, so it travels along that pathway. Yes, and that that's kind of where we would access it. If we were trying to stimulate it, I mean, I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves, but that's where I've heard it, you know, oh, put pressure into your belly kind of through the diaphragm. It's very deep, which is maybe another question of like, well, how well can you actually access this thing it, from a, a like a hands-on perspective? A hundred percent. Or an so external perspective. In yoga spaces or when thinking of it from an external place, like you mentioned, I think there is a lot of. Um, in, information around deep breathing in order to stimulate mm-hmm. it there. But I will mm-hmm. also say that some people, there are actually medical proce- procedures that are meant to stimulate the vagus nerve, like up closer to the neck and in the throat. Right. Right. So, so vagal nerve stimulation is, is I think to your point, sort of a newer idea in yoga spaces, but there are actually a lot of really debilitating conditions that vagal stimulation has been used for, um, like epilepsy. Um, I think they've used it for folks who have rheumatoid arthritis. Um, there was another one. And some actually, there's some some preliminary research in folks with dementia. Um, so there's there are some conditions that do use vagal nerve stimulation, but I think that's a little bit different than maybe how we're thinking about it in terms of upregulation and downregulation. Yeah. The, the thing, so the breathing is the one thing also like laying on your belly with some sort of ball on the belly or lying on your back with some sort of weight on your belly to try Mm -hmm. to press into it. And you like, when you do that, you feel some sort of pulsating. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. 
Laura rolls her eyes a little bit. So Fine. Okay. This, is, this is like my, uh, this has been my exposure to it. So no, I mean, look, here's the thing. It's always nuanced, right? So mm -hmm. this gets back to that like reductionist idea. And it drives me nuts, to be honest with you, because how can you say that laying on your belly with a blanket is stimulating the, the vagus nerve? <laughs> oh, God, when... with the blanket? Certainly not. Right. But like, you need like some, some weight in there, at least. Well, but, but, even, but even the weighted blanket, Travis, that external pressure, pressure. There's a lot going on. Yes, that is mm -hmm. actually part of your nervous system. That is a different part of your nervous system. Like that, how can you say that the only thing that you're doing through that pose is stimulating the vagus nerve? And I know it, you're not purporting this, right? You're talking right. about what you've seen. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just... Oh my gosh, anything you do from a physical place in a movement space in a yoga class, you are manipulating a lot of different systems. It's so difficult to say this one thing. <laughs> well, it's like, it's like Jenny and I have talked about this on the podcast before. It's like trying to do manual therapy to the psoas. It's like, <laughs> sorry to tell you, psoas is so deep in there. Like maybe you're pushing on it indirectly by pushing on other stuff, but you're doing a lot of other stuff. You're, you're accessing way more superficial tissues uh, more effectively or likely than yeah. something mm -hmm. that. I'm really glad you brought that up too, because I know you spent a, you guys have spent a ton of time talking about like, do we store emotions in these muscles? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. oh my gosh, that's another thing relating to polyvagal theory. This idea yes. that somehow, <laughs> I don't know when you want me to get to the punchline of all of this or what I really think about it, but... <laughs> Somehow, but like your emotions are stored in a peripheral cranial nerve and that you upregulating a single nerve that has right is somehow going to completely you know get rid of all of the trauma you've experienced or it's going to change your heart in such a way that you are so resilient like these are really, these are true things that people say and their people make, make a lot of money on training people to do polyvagal yeah. manipulation. And, and the part that really, I think upsets me the most, and maybe this is my like science and, and therapist hat is a lot of times people who are seeking these kinds of treatment really have gone through stuff and they are dealing with a lot of really difficult mental and, you know, physical symptoms. And a lot of times, like, reducing their experiences to some sort of, like, it's just this one little tool and you pay $199 a month and we're going to make everything better. Like, that just feels a little predatory to me. Um, so I think that's the part that really bothers me is that the folks who are seeking this out actually probably really need a lot more support than what this reductionist model could really give them. Thank you so much for saying that and going to your punchline. You're welcome to say your punchline, whatever you want, and as many I, times I as have, you like. I may have derailed things. So Jenny, if you no, you it's get, really get back on your, your train of thought wherever it was five minutes ago. Not at all. This is perfect. And Travis, I'm actually glad that you have brought up this notion of um stick quote stimulating the vagus nerve kind of manually or mechanically because that's a different way of accessing the vagus nerve than i had been familiar with or familiar with people talking about yeah. i had feel like I, I had gotten more of the impression that people discuss it in a more like systemic sense like um that deep breathing um and that actually maybe has more plausibility shifts you deep breathing would shift you more into parasympathetic side and then that would quote activate 
the vagus nerve because the vagus nerve does play such a big role in the parasympathetic nervous system. Like the, like things like that, like more, um, more global, I guess, like affecting the body and the nervous system as a whole. I didn't, but I guess people can't, I mean, people talk about, I just love the connection Laura made to emotions in tissue, in the body. And we totally had a whole podcast episode on, do you store emotions in your hips? And I guess I'll, I'll just say, cause we're talking, you brought it up and now I'm talking about it. We got a lot of great feedback and a lot of enthusiastic support for that, but we also got a lot of criticism. Well, yeah, a significant amount of criticism that I, that came across my uh, radar. And it was mostly from people who I felt like they seemed really rooted in polyvagal theory and some of these ideas in um, yoga therapy that are out there. Cause this, you know, our podcast is in the yoga world quite a bit. So it's people more from this side of things. Um, but people who I think had, uh, you, you know, they're just, they've, they are part of this paradigm about the body of like pulling out, um, single factor causes and single factor solutions and, and categorizing things and oversimplifying them. Like these ideas, you can literally store an emotion in your hip. That's what we focused on in our, um, in our podcast episode and that via stretching the hip, somehow that releases, like that's the mechanism that releases, you know, cause like, yeah pigeon pose is a stretch for the hip and that's the classic release your emotions and it just doesn't make you know when you really look at the complexity of the body it's just yeah. it doesn't make sense when people hold on to these ideas and anyway and so to that point and this is how i'm gonna i'm gonna explain how i believe polyvagal theory is a circular argument yes you're talking about a peripheral nerve in the autonomic nervous system, right? We took all that time in the beginning of the show talking about what it means to be unconscious or involuntary. You're taking an involuntary peripheral nerve, which has no <laughs> legitimate central nervous system role, right? It talks because oh, it's in the peripheral. Yeah, it talks to the central nervous system, absolutely, but it is not in no way part of the central nervous system. I think where people get confused is like, well, it comes off the back of the skull, but no, the, the par all of the cranial nerves are considered peripheral nervous system because of the function, because they are not making active decisions. They are giving information and they are receiving information and they are right transporting it, but they're not making decisions. So how can you take something that is both involuntary and not in control and then say, we can actively consciously change this thing to make you individual person more resilient it's it's backwards wow. you can't actively control an involuntary nerve and and then the other thing for me is tone vagal tone what is that so the way we actually measure <laughs> the way we Sorry. measure vagal tone in all seriousness is indirect Vagal tone mm -hmm. is measured by heart rate variability. We can talk mm -hmm. about that if you want, but that's not a direct measurement. One and two, what's normal tone? Like right. we even know in some spaces, and again, this might be a little bit outside of the conversation, but just so, so the listeners know, in some spaces, there's a lot of arguments about those norms of our vital signs, even our heart rate, our blood pressure, our respiratory rate. How do we develop these norms? Well, they're based on studies. And if not everyone is being included in these studies, then how can we say they're norms? So that's even for vital signs that we have been using to categorize and understand medical information for decades, hundreds of years. Then you're talking about something that we're just really starting to understand and measure in the past maybe two decades. 
There's no norms for that. There's no understanding of what that really means. And it's an indirect measurement. I'm so, you know, we, yeah, we had wanted you to, we wanted to ask you about heart rate variability a little bit, because we know that does get brought into um, discussions around the vagus nerve and, and um, measuring quote vagal tone, which is a total buzz term that I hear a ton in the yoga world, yeah. vagal tone. Um, and you had mentioned uh, a study that you came across about measuring heart rate variability and its connection to vagal to quote vagal tone. Yeah. Um, could you tell us about like, just like a little, little bit about that? And, yeah, and maybe so, just what is heart rate variability? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Know, you. Yeah. What is it? Precursor. Yeah. So I'll, I think I'm going to say three things. I'm going to explain what heart rate variability is. I'm going to explain what the supposed relationship is between vagal tone and heart rate variability. And then the fun part, which is the study. <laughs> the fun part. <laughs> um, so, so heart rate variability literally is just like the variation in time between adjacent heartbeats. So let's say that someone's heart rate is 60 beats per minute. Um, and maybe this is new information to folks, your heart, if that's your heart rate, it doesn't mean that you get one beat per second really neat and clean. There's a little bit of variability between every beat. That's normal. It's not abnormal. That's normal. And some people suggest that increased heart rate variability has a lot of really positive physiological implications. It means your heart is ready at any given moment to respond to things. I like that idea. I don't know if, you know, I got to do a little bit more digging to see if I agree, but I like that idea because I feel like it's resilient building. It's resilience building, right? You believe your body is capable. I th think there's good evidence from an athletic standpoint that higher heart rate variability is indicative of better recovery. Cool. Uh, like you're you're more prepared mm -hmm. for your next bout sense. of activity if your heart rate variability is high. I'm glad you said that too, because that actually brings up something else I wanted to mention in the context of it being really supportive of recovery recovery is not just one thing, right? Or being ready for a physical activity, whatever it is, is not just one thing. So heart rate variability is actually not linear. Like you can't, it's another reason why I don't buy the vagal tone thing. You, you can't just attribute heart rate variability to one thing. It's multifactorial. It's your blood pressure. Mm -hmm. It's like different metabolites. It's uh, like different, it's just all of these different dynamic processes in your body that are giving you one output. It's the same thing as blood pressure. Your blood pressure isn't just like the tone of the vessel. There's a lot of different things that go into that. But we we try again, like <laughs> that's the theme, right? Mm -hmm. We reduce things to make them make mm -hmm. sense. And I think that there is definitely some value in that. But also when you're using all of these explanations and then packaging it to people, that's when it becomes a little bit dangerous. So absolutely. And, in, and when it comes to polyvagal theory, I want to say that higher heart rate variability is linked to higher vagal tone, which is linked to more emotional stability in my understanding. That's the theory. That's the one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one thing. Yes. That's what I've read. And whereas decreased heart rate variability, meaning your body is like not as prepared, is linked to decreased vagal tone, which is linked to trauma and emotional instability and all of these other things. That and, and people are treating that as like, a, that's a, a static feature of a person but heart rate variability fluctuates day to day time of day yeah like if you're if you're measuring it you want to measure it consistently usually when you wake up mm -hmm. if you're going to use it for to inform your training but like you're describing it's like this is like a feature of a person that sort of uh describes them more than just in that moment and that's not really the case 
Absolutely. So a perfect example, Travis, would be like, um, you know, gas exchange, gas exchange and the metabolites I was talking about, like that all has to do with heart rate variability. If you train at a higher altitude, your heart rate variability is going to inevitably different, be different than someone who trains at a, a, trains at a lower altitude. And I think that's part, part of the reason that people do that is because you're pushing mm -hmm. your heart to have a more dynamic response and your lungs in that higher, that higher elevation training environment so that when you come back down again, your endurance is amazing. I mean, like that's part of it, right? Mm. So that's a great example where like, it's not just a personal thing. It's an environmental thing. It could be, yeah. right? It's like, it's affected by so many different pieces, just like we are because we're organic people that respond to the world and our bodies and are not, oh you know, just stuck with our experiences, which I think is what this theory purports, like that yeah. you, there's something wrong and you alone, maybe you didn't do those things to yourself, but they happened to you, but you have a role in fixing them. And like, I love that. I love that idea of people taking an active role in their healing. But the underlying message is that there's this one single thing and this is the thing that needs to be fixed and it's wrong with you. Absolutely. Just like the opposite of what you want in, in those spaces and in healing spaces. 100%. And you outlined that purported connection or these um, this conclusion that polyvagal theory seems to put out there, which is that higher vagal tone uh, means, um, oh, sorry, higher heart rate variability means higher vagal tone. And then that means better emotional stability or whatever. I, I think that yep. that's, you could say that. So um, could you maybe speak to that study that you had found on yes. heart rate variability and vagal, vagus nerve activation? I got so excited. I got off the rails. Yes, I can. That's okay. That's why we're here. <laughs> That's right. So I told you a little bit ago that the way we measure vagal tone is indirect because we're measuring it through heart rate variability. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. It's invasive. to, you, to In order to measure vagal tone, you're measuring from a nerve. There's a lot of issues with that. So what do we do when we can't do something in humans? We start in an animal model. That's the, right. very much the way science works, right? Um, and so I found a study that was released like 2021, so not so long ago. Um, and it was actually doing a direct measurement of vagal tone in rodents and comparing it to heart rate variability. And the punchline of the study was there was no correlation between heart rate variability and vagal tone. Now, of course, there may be people who would say, well, that's in rodents, you know, that's not in people. Right. Again, if you're not seeing, if you're not, if what you're telling me is there's this physiological mechanism for why this thing happens and it's not being proven in another mammal, yes, it's a rodent, but it's a mammal, right? Right. Same kind of human, same kind of animal that we are. There's something going on there, right? Because because you told me it's not about the central nervous system. You told me it's about this peripheral nerve. It doesn't matter. Their their little brain is different than my big brain. It should be about the peripheral nervous system, and you're not seeing it. So I think the reason why there's people, you know, in science spaces that are doing this is because polyvagal theory is prolific enough that there are people mm -hmm. who are dedicating their time, energy, and funding to prove it wrong because it's just, there's a lot of issues with it. It's a lot of conflation of psychology with physiology that I think is really problematic. Oh, that's so true. My goodness. Yeah. And um, now that you speak to just like um, the element of psychology, not now, I mean, you've been talking about that this whole time, but it, it does, it leads me to a question uh, to ask you, Laura, which is that, 
at least the way I see polyvagal theory brought into yoga spaces, not so, I mean, I know it's also brought into like mental health professional spaces. And there are people I know who um, are licensed mental health professionals who do work with polyvagal theory. And then there are people who are non-licensed medical professionals who, who claim to be like polyvagal coaches and things like that, but they haven't actually been through training and licensing to be mental health professionals. But all that aside, in the yoga world, it tends to be brought in kind of like I said, more in that yoga therapy side of things and um, spaces in the yoga world where I would suggest that there is a little there is a crossing of lines where um, yoga is being treated as like a, a trauma therapy like a therapy for healing trauma mm -hmm. and polyvagal theory is totally brought into that and other things as well. Um, emotions stored in your hips, in your fascia, in your tissues, things like that. And trauma needs to be released in the form of those emotions. Do you, do you feel that yoga teachers who are not um, licensed mental health professionals, do you think it's within their scope to be presenting concepts and, and bringing strategies into their yoga teaching that are about, um, you know, directly improving mental health and healing trauma in a direct manner like that? That is a great question. I mean, my short answer is no. I don't think that it's within the scope of practice of a, of a movement instructor who does not otherwise have that mental health training um, to, to be providing mental health support in that way. Now, that being said, I understand before people get mad at me, I understand that there is a lot of great, <laughs> there is a lot of gray area because I myself mm -hmm, mm -hmm. straddle worlds mm -hmm. where I'm not a mental health therapist, but I am a physical therapist. And I also am a movement instructor in community spaces. And so it's hard mm -hmm. sometimes because I can see a lot of the overlap because the bottom line is movement does heal in a lot of ways. But it's the way we talk about movement healing us that I think is the problem. And so my concern in those spaces for instructors who otherwise don't necessarily have that training is they don't necessarily have all of the physiological background and the neuroscience background that mental health professionals get to be able to break down these complex mm -hmm. theories and information to individuals. And then also it gets me back to that reductionist approach, which is if you're a mental health professional, you have a bunch of tools in your toolbox to be able to support your client with whatever they're going through. It's not going to be just vagal training. Whereas what I've seen in some yoga spaces is like, that is the answer. Right. Well, that's such a good point. Again, it's nuance, right? Like, I think it's totally appropriate if you had a client ask you about it to explain what you know and give them some resources. I think mm -hmm. it's totally okay to discuss the idea, but to actively use what you believe to be a training strategy to support mental health in a community movement space. Yeah, I think that's, it's crossing a line. So it's, it's crossing a line and it's using something that might not even be right. Yeah, uh, yes, is, absolutely. It, I, and maybe I, we've danced around this, but what are the things that yoga teachers or yoga therapists are doing or is it more what they're saying with what they're doing well you gave a great example earlier the ball and the way to the, the ball yeah is it so like is that so i've you know i've experienced that are are there other interventions that we haven't mentioned maybe it's just the breathing i to be honest with you i don't know like what the training package looks like 
I don't, cause I, I'm pretty sure from all the websites I went on, you got to pay a lot of money to be able to have mm-hmm. access to those materials. So I haven't really been able to see like the nuts and bolts of what it really looks like to deliver vagal training. But what I will say, um, like I'm looking over here at this little quote that I pulled up because it's from one of these websites and it really irked me. If you are a client, <laughs> if you are a client is living with an overwhelmed nervous system, the vagus nerve is likely weak. We have something for that. How can, a, how can a nerve be weak? Wow. I mean, that is the level of distillation. Like we are so diluted in the information that people are receiving that you're talking about a nerve being weak. It's like not even a thing. Wow. Diluted is such a great word for it. And like just hugely reductionist and broken down. And it's like, as we talked about earlier, in some cases, categorizing things and simplifying things is helpful for learning. But in other contexts, it just seems like it's not really, it's not productive and really can be counterproductive. I just wanted to add too, um, and I, I can't speak for certain on this, but what I will say is in a lot of spaces who use this language that says there's something wrong with you, you can fix it. Oftentimes the therapy model requires an intervention from the teacher. And that intervention from the teacher is necessary as part of the training, which I understand the value of that. But I will say again, as a physical therapist, my goal always when I'm working with someone is that they don't want to, they, they don't need to work with me anymore because mm-hmm. you want to develop that resilience and autonomy and confidence in the person in front of you that they say, you know what? I don't need to come here. I'm going to go. I have all the tools. I have all the things I need to do. And I feel better in these spaces when you are relying on another practitioner to have to go back to X number of times per month, per week, whatever. And I'm guaranteeing you, cause I looked at some of the prices, it's very expensive. That's why I use that word predatory. It just feels very mm-hmm. predatory. And I'm sure that there are plenty of people out there that are using themes and concepts around this idea that are helping people. And that's another thing I just want to add is like, I'm very pragmatic. So like if something helps somebody, even if I think it's a placebo effect, I'm like, okay, if that helped you, if you're going to tell me that watching a YouTube video helped you and you feel less pain. Okay. You know, I'm, it's not, I'm not here to, to make you change that, that feeling, right. I'm here to support you in the way that I can. So like, I'm sure that there's, there's plenty of people out there who are making meaningful changes. It's just like, are we, are we doing it from a sound grounded place or is it like fear mongering and reductionist? That's my concern. Yeah. Then that that was my question too. Like, is there any, anything that you can take away from this theory that may be not true or may be limited, but has some practical applications that are beneficial? I think the, the, the idea, the framework of people being able to dynamically respond to their emotional world is awesome. Mm-hmm. I would love for every human being to feel that that is something that they could do. And I think that that's where, Jenny, you had mentioned earlier on that idea of like, we lived in an upregulated society And so downregulation is the way to go and yoga is amazing and mindfulness is amazing. And it's like, okay, let's just start at the beginning. What does that mean? We live in an an upregulated society. Does that mean that our nervous systems are, you know, just wild and, and running amok 
No, it means that the world around us is a, is a lot. There's a lot of stuff happening in the world around us. And so actually what I think like a movement practice like yoga does is it gives you an opportunity to meaningfully practice resilience in like a safe space so that you're not out in the world trying to figure out, you know, like, oh, can I cross the street and I'm on the cell phone and when am I going to eat lunch and I have to get back for this deadline? It's like I'm doing this one thing and I am in touch with my body and I'm reconnecting with myself like that. I'm totally behind. But that idea of like taking it down to just one single nerve, I think that's the issue, right? Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that that idea of, of building emotional resilience is awesome. But also the other, the other piece of that is the original idea of polyvagal theory somehow was that like our, <laughs> our ability to regulate is like evolved compared to our fight or flight mechanism, which also is not true. Like there are plenty of studies that true. show that like reptiles have both divisions you know so it's not like a it's not like an inherently human thing that we have the rest and digest component of our parasympathetic nervous system anyway oh so i told you a good i told you a good thing and then i told you another thing i don't agree with sorry <laughs> thank you for pointing that out though about the the theory within polyvagal theory that certain responses are are new in evolution and unique to human because that's a bunch of bunk and if you actually yeah. look into it it's totally a myth and it's based on this thing we won't get into we don't have time but it's called the triune brain theory or yeah the triune brain and that's a myth but it's still super pervasive and i see it influence of influencing a bunch of um talk that i see in the yoga world unfortunately yeah. polyvagal theory guy missed that day in high school biology class <laughs> exactly um but i think that that pointing out that like mm -hmm. reptiles have some of these same um some of the same neurological anatomy claimed by the tyrant brain model to be only only quote modern or more complex in humans like yeah. we just know like evolutionary it evolution doesn't it doesn't work that way and it's shown us definitively that, that that's wrong but psychology is like a different field and they don't necessarily all um, interchange, you know, Absolutely. different field from like evolutionary, um, neurobiology or whatever. So thanks for bringing that up. Yes. Major conflation of multiple areas of expertise, you know, and I totally agree with that. And the other thing is in listening to you, Jenny, I was just thinking about poly and I wanted to bring up the fact mm -hmm. that the reason why it's called polyvagal based on the evolution comment is that there's like a branch of the yes. vagus nerve that I think is related to, to the polyvagal theory. And I'm yeah. sorry, I don't have more details than that. But again, that's like been debunked, right? Like it's it's the same thing as me going into a brain. And I mean, honestly, like 50 years ago, we were giving people lobotomies because we believed if we got rid of one chunk of their brain, that somehow that was going to magically restore their function. Surprise, it didn't. We don't do lobotomies anymore. So like <laughs> one tiny section of the vagus nerve cannot possibly be responsible for all of the trauma that an individual has endured, yeah. you know, it can't be the only place that we store, right? Um, but it would be, uh, it would be really great. It would be really nice if we had these one little places, you know, these little places in our bodies that fix that we could, if we fixed, it would all be better. But we know that that's not true. So <laughs> those are some perfect points that I was hoping that we would cover today. Thank you so much for speaking to those. I think, um, a thought that I've had and Travis and I've talked about before with the vagus nerve and polyvagal theory in general is that um, as we've talked about a few times in our podcast episodes, the psoas muscle, so this is more, that's in the musculoskeletal system, the psoas muscle is a muscle that's often pulled out and made to be this like magic muscle. 
mm-hmm. and often claim to be the repository of your emotions and your trauma or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so something that we've Travis and I have talked about is, is the vagus nerve, has that become the psoas of the nerve world? Is it like we have so many nerves in the peripheral nervous system, but like we pull that one out and make it like, yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. And here's all the parallels. So as biggest muscle crosses multiple areas, vagus nerve, longest peripheral nerve crosses multiple areas, you know, so as deeply related to the connection between the upper body and the lower body via the hip vagus nerve connection of the top of you know the brain all the way through the body via the entire internal organs like it's all about that anatomical narrative like oh can we just move beyond this like we we know like here's something that's for real you want to talk about you want to talk about vagus nerve and sensory information going back to the brain there is a definite definite evidence-based connection between the stuff going on with our digestive system and our brain, right? There is legitimate mm-hmm, work being mm-hmm. done to understand the complex interaction of things like inflammation um, and and like the way we are as people from our psychological spaces, but also from a physiological place. Like there is legitimate work being done. What's the the gut something access? Gut brain access, yeah, the gut brain access. Mm-hmm. Which sounds yeah. like what that can't be real but it's real yeah i mean i think what they're finding for some folks like i can give an example of like um irritable bowel syndrome or like Mm -hmm. any any sort of like um just inflammation going on in the digestive system there have been a lot of studies that show that some mental health therapy can actually really support the symptoms that come along with that gastrointestinal issue Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so like that i buy but again central nervous system i'm not talking about one little cranial nerve that's hanging in my neck right like (laughs) and and so that's that to me is that delineation is like unless we're talking about building in the central i'm sorry i'm making you laugh so much but like building in the central nervous system then i just don't buy Mm -hmm. it so yeah but i i actually think there's a lot of really legitimate work being done to understand that complex connection between the um the digestive system and the nervous system Amazing. I feel like at this point in our conversation, this is probably a good time to maybe wrap up our polyvagal theory discussion and ju- and maybe end with our listeners on some take home points that they can bring with them. But what they've all been waiting for. Yeah, what we said to wait till the end. Um, but one thing I, I was just hoping to so you just mentioned it reminded me of this, Laura, which is just that just to maybe potentially leave listeners with this reminder that when we pull something out like a peripheral nerve, the vagus nerve, and we give it all this agency or this sense of as though it's controlling what's happening in our body or to our emotions or to trauma, it does seem to like when you keep saying like, that's a peripheral nerve. And what I care about as far as directing all of that is the central nervous system. I think just making that point that it's really the brain that's like the regulatory body and the, like the brain is what's monitoring and and sending out all the commands and creating the whole way that we experience and perceive our body and the world. It's the brain, it's not like peripheral nerves. So the vagus nerve is like a conduit or um, you know messages travel through it, uh, commands travel through it, but it's not the messenger or the commander itself. Would you say that's? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's a great way of putting it. And going back to that orchestra analogy, like if the conductor is not there, there is no music, right? And so right. 
the music, if we're talking about trying to regulate folks and help help people manage their day to day life and deal with really difficult things that deserve a lot of respect and time, I don't think talking about one little peripheral nerve is the answer. I think we got to talk about the brain for sure. Thank you so much. I feel like that was just really well articulated and laid out and super helpful and productive, um, okay. like for us and for our listeners. So um, maybe we can just take a shift and maybe it'll just be kind of quick because our episode's getting a little long now. But based on everything we've talked about in this conversation from the start, Laura, could you just leave us with a few kind of relevant takeaways that we as say yoga, movement, fitness, practitioners and teachers may consider integrating in in how we um how we think about all this within our practice and yeah. our teaching yeah so <clears throat> travis brought up an example of deep breathing earlier and i did want to mm -hmm. get to that because there are a lot of you, you'll hear me and maybe this is my lean so i'll be honest about that maybe this is my bias but i am very interested in active strategies to support clients as opposed to passive strategies because active strategies require right <laughs> active engagement so I'm not as much of a fan of like, even though I think restorative has its place and laying the heavy blanket and laying on the ball and, and if it feels good, do it, great. But when we're, when we're talking about actually trying to help ourselves calm down in moments of crisis, I think diaphragmatic breathing is actually really fantastic because like I said earlier, the, the vagus nerve and the phrenic nerve are little buddies and they travel through the diaphragm. So when you're activating your diaphragm through deep breathing, you are giving sensory information to the vagus nerve to tell the brain, like, I'm slowing my breathing down. And that's an example of a way that we actively have an external control over our breath. If you stop thinking about your breath, you just keep breathing, right? Unless mm -hmm. you don't, and then we're not here any longer. But if you, if you are actively breathing, then you are manipulating your nervous system. And I love teaching people that they can manipulate their nervous system through the breath. And that's how I talk about it. Mm -hmm. So like, mm -hmm. if you're really nervous, taking deep belly breaths can actually help you become less nervous because you are actively giving sensory information to your brain that I am slowing my breath rate down. So I think that's a really good example. Um, <clears throat> I think another really interesting one that I don't necessarily think that it's increasing tone. So I definitely don't agree with that. But I do think integrating like humming or chanting, if that is part of your practice, can be really great because again, vagus nerve is partially responsible for the muscles relating to speaking and singing and oh, breathing. Right. Um, so that could be really interesting. And I think some people perhaps do feel a sense of calm when they do a chanting or humming practice. Self-massage is another great example. So that is an active way to create that external pressure that maybe like a weighted blanket could do. So if you want to integrate some self-massage into your class, like I know some folks really love to do like a base of the foot massage or like a trap massage. Um, I think that's a really great example. And I also think that just talking through the narrative of building resilience in a safe space through movement is something that everyone could somehow integrate into their classes. So oftentimes, like when I'm teaching, and we might be in a precarious position. So for example, let's just say tree, like, so we're mm -hmm. balancing on one foot. I'm like, whoa, this is tough, right? Like, what's your body saying to you in this moment? letting people take a second to really feel what it feels like how their body is paying attention to doing something difficult because i bet you'll notice that your heart rate comes up a little bit and maybe you start to breathe a little bit more quickly and you feel off balance right you're reacting to your world and i'll say things i may have even said them in some of the classes i recorded for your library you know like 
this is akin to balancing, you know, holding your iPad and your coffee and trying to have a conversation, right? When you're stepping down off the sidewalk, like there are a lot of ways that you can start to think about that in classes and bringing it into everyday life. That's just one example. Um, but but that building that narrative of you are in control of your body and your mind. And yes. even in moments where it doesn't feel like you are, there's always an opportunity to build that resilience through movement because movement is every system of your body, like we talked about. I really like the the exploration or inquisitive cue, like, how are you feeling in this moment as opposed to, do you feel shaky? This is a threatening position, right? Yeah. Like, don't, I, don't tell them, let them come to it. Yeah. And I totally understand from a, from a teacher perspective, why you want to give information. But I think reframing the communication strategies away from you should feel blank to giving mm -hmm. the person in front of you the agency, what do you feel? And, you know, giving modifications. It's the same reason why you do that, because one particular asana or pose is not going to be perfect for every single individual. That's why you give options, right? It's, this, it's the same thing with the feeling space. We don't need to we don't need to ascribe feelings to every single thing. We can let people feel <laughs> letting people feel is I mean, to me, that's part of building resilience is you let people feel right. We move through things physically, emotionally, and that's how we get on the other side of them. That is fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that list of just like tangible ways that we might that we might think about in an evidence-based sense, incorporating some of this understanding about the nervous system. The nervous system is hugely complex and could really take years to study to like actually understand some of these complex processes, but we can still take, maybe it's our five-year-old understandings or <laughs> just like some of this superficial level and uh, make it relevant and interesting and important in, in our yoga movement, fitness, practicing and teaching. I mean, it's, we all have nervous systems. They basically run everything about how we experience our bodies in the world. So learning about them can be super beneficial, I feel like. And Laura, you're such a great teacher oh, <laughs> about that system and about so much else about our bodies and um, movement. I, I really feel lucky to have gotten to learn from you, not only in this conversation, but in everything that you've um, recorded and offered in my library. And I feel that myself and all of our members in that community are really, we're really lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me. And also this topic, like really diving into, yeah. I love be having the opportunity to dive into thinking about movement through a nervous system perspective. And so any opportunity I have to do that is awesome. And obviously any conversation all three of us have is always great. So thank you. Yeah. And um, just really quickly before we sign off, would you be able to tell our listeners where if they'd like to learn more from you or just follow you in your work, oh, where they can find you? Yeah. And we is... will put all, all of this in the show notes as well. So you guys can um, check the show notes to to find the links. For yeah. Um, so if you have an interest in following me on social media, I have an Instagram page called lab underscore moves. Um, my website is laurabearmoves.com. And uh, if you just Google my name, a lot of my science work and some presentations and blog posts I've written are available publicly. So that's also another opportunity. Perfect. Thank you so much for listening to all that. We'll put all that in the show notes. And um, I think with all of that said, we're pretty good to wrap this conversation up. Do you think so, Travis? I think so. <laughs> Thank you so much, Laura. Yeah, thank you, Laura. We really appreciated it. Thank you. And that wraps up our look at the nervous system and polyvagal theory. 
Remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off any of the memberships on my website, including my online class library, which features Dr. Laura Baer, our podcast guest today, as a special guest contributor, or Travis's and My Strength for Yoga offering. You can learn more and sign up on my website, and the link for that is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. And if you found this discussion to be of value, we would so appreciate your support if you had time to subscribe to this podcast and to leave us a rating or a review. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon. Mm-hmm.